Hello and welcome back to Rewildology, the podcast that explores conservation, travel, and rewilding the planet. I'm your host, Brooke Mitchell Norman, conservation biologist and adventure traveler. It's rare that we only have one passion in life. Most of us in the conservation and travel realms enjoy hobbies outside of making the world a better place. We dance, paint, run marathons, train for intense sports, raise families, and play. What happens when we find a way to bring together two of our passions? And how would one go about such a wild idea? Well, I'm happy to share that today's guest did just that, all in the name of protecting the ecosystem and sport he loves. Today, we are sitting down with Christian Shaw, founder and executive director of Plastic Tides. Christian grew up in Ithaca, New York, with a love for the outdoors. He began surfing at the age of six and picked up kite surfing by the time he was 14. During his undergraduate degree at Cornell University, he was exposed to the depths of the plastic pollution issue and had a brilliant idea to kite surf across the Great Pacific Garbage Patch with the hope of bringing awareness to the problem. The idea grew and evolved into stand-up paddleboard expeditions around Bermuda and the Great Lakes near his New York home. And through these adventures, his nonprofit Plastic Tides was born. Now, almost 10 years later, Plastic Tides has grown in size and collective impact for ocean conservation. Christian and I have lots of laughs discussing how the idea came to him to use his passion for sports to raise awareness for plastic pollution, why Bermuda was chosen as the first expedition site, and what they found while there, being a part of the Microbee Plastics Band in 2015, how Plastic Tides has grown and evolved since its inception in 2014, nonprofits versus for-profits, advice for those that want to combine their two passions to make an impact, and so much more. Also, Christian mentioned several locations, organizations, and laws throughout the episode, which we've provided links to in the show notes at rewildology.com. Now, without further ado, friends, please enjoy this lighthearted conversation with Christian. Well, hi, Christian. Thank you so much for sitting down with me today and taking some time out of your busy schedule to just share your awesome story and your unique way that you have gone into environmentalism and conservation. And the path that you've done is quite inspiring. So tell me and tell everyone listening, what led you to do what you're doing? And what's the journey that brought you to today? Well, thank you so much for having me, Brooke. Uh, it's uh, it's great to be here, and yeah, it's it's, uh, it's you know I would say that I've just kind of been on a journey for a long time. You know, I think that's kind of you know what life is. It's all about the journey, and so you know I uh, I'm from upstate New York, Ithaca, New York, and uh, I grew up. Uh, my mom's a science teacher, and uh, my dad works in environmental health and safety, and is a uh, is sort of a scientist in his own right. Yeah, just grew up being kind of, you know, exposed to the outdoors and, and, you know, broadening my awareness to a lot of the issues that we were facing and how, how I could get involved and, and try and do something, you know, about it. I, uh, I actually got into some, this program called Primitive Pursuits when I was in middle school, which I think was really formative, which was these guys that set up this program where they would go and work with kids after school and you know take you out in the woods we had a really cool nature center 
and teach you how to make fire with hand drills and wow create you know uh, containers from bark and sap to to hold water and boil water and throwing sticks you know hunting after little rabbits and so forth and uh yeah just like super cool um exposure at that age to sort of like a different thing and and then yeah just kind of i think growing up you know being educated by the time i was sort of ready for college i was pretty acutely aware of like sort of all the things that were wrong and the way that we were living on the planet and I'm also a surfer. I've been surfing since I was probably six years old and I've been kite surfing since I was maybe 14 or 15. And so I think both of those things have also been super influential in in my journey and my, my interaction with the ocean and nature and, you know, and eventually connecting with the issue of plastic pollution. So, yeah, I don't know where I should start in terms of, you know, plastic (laughs) ties and and what I'm doing now and, and stuff. But, um, but yeah, that's how I was got set on this path. Yeah. And you just brought up two very important things. And it's it's incredible what happens when we combine fields. And for you, it was environmental advocacy and adventure sports, which seem completely like how in the world can you connect the two? So how did you put these two passions of yours together? How did this idea come to be? And then what was the first application of it? What was your first really cool expedition that you put together? Yeah, so that's, that's, you know, really well put. And I think that's exactly what it is for me is like, you know, kind of combining that uh, passion for, you know, water sports, adventure, the outdoors with purpose and, and a lot of exciting things can happen at that, that intersection. And so uh, I started to sort of explore that through just different things that I was doing locally in my university community and, and the water sports clubs that I'd started. Uh, I went to Cornell University in upstate New York, well, the same town that I grew up in, in Ithaca. And uh, yeah, I was just like really active, you know, with that with that kind of stuff. And And then when I was at Cornell in the fall of 2012, this National Geographic Young Explorers Grant workshop came to our school and I found out about it, signed up. And it was, it was cool. The first half was, you know, a big presentation. And there were a few of the young explorers that had done, you know, these cool expeditions there speaking on stage and, and people kind of walking us through the program and, and who can apply and what it was all about. And then they had a really nice lunch and then breakout sessions where you got to go in a smaller group. And if you wanted to pitch an idea to the group, you could. And so I had this concept to basically go out and kite surf across the Great Pacific garbage patch and use that to get aerial footage and and kind of bring all this awareness to the issue. And I had just learned about plastic pollution sort of on a global scale through my oceanography class that fall and had been really blown away by the issue as something that I as someone who felt like I was pretty well educated around sustainability and was studying sustainability, you know, at an Ivy League university a couple years into my studies had had still, you know, not really had a significant awareness of just in day to day life. And it was really one of those kind of, you know, once you see it, you don't unsee it moments. Mm -hmm. And 
yeah and i and through the work of five gyres i learned about the the great pacific garbage patch and so that time i thought that there was just this floating mass of trash out there that you could <laughs> go out and and like kind of bounce across and get this cool footage and so i pitched this idea to the group and everyone thought it was really cool and i ended up connecting with the guy who was sort of leading the breakout session uh this young adventurer chris bastianelli who i've stayed connected with he's uh He's really cool. He well, he was there. He had done some some really interesting work with Ben and Jerry's and uh, documenting the folks farming the vanilla on these sort of small scale sustainable farms and fair trade farms in in Uganda. But yeah, I connected with him as a as a surfer, and he kind of like gave me a nudge, you know, along with the project and with submitting an application, and and that's how Plastic Tides was born initially, and we ended up. Going from this idea of going out and and kiteboarding across the Great Pacific Garbage Patch to then digging deeper and understanding, like now, you know, my depth of understanding is such that it's a plastic smog really in the ocean. It's not this surface layer. And so it's really distributed throughout the water column because there's algae and different things that colonize the plastics. And then they start to lose their buoyancy and become basically neutrally buoyant and eventually make their way to the ocean floor. And so that's also why a lot of plastic, like if the, if all the plastic that had ever gone into the ocean was still sitting on the surface, it would be way different than, than the, the current situation because the ocean does sort of clean itself in a way, bringing things to the floor of the ocean or bringing them back to the beaches. But, you know, essentially you can't go out there and film it from a plane or a helicopter or a drone really and you could be even sailing through it and you wouldn't necessarily know unless you actually jumped in and got underwater and looked around and you know you might see a few a few larger pieces of plastic a fishing net a bucket a, you know a jug or whatever but it wouldn't be you know like oh we're here we're in the we're in the gyre <laughs> yeah we found it right <laughs> <It's> like <laughs> this landfill in the pacific we found yeah. it <laughs> bring in <Right>. the bulldozers <laughs> so yeah so that ended up being distilled down to a stand-up paddleboard expedition around bermuda and so really coming up with a way to combine adventure and science through the stand-up paddleboard expeditions doing something that was unique and paddleboarding was a really growing burgeoning sport at the time and and also lent us this capacity to really get into areas with low impact, you know, like carbon neutral and, and without disturbing, you know, anything. So we went to Bermuda and we, and we did an 11 day Santa paddleboard expedition around the island of Bermuda, researching plastics with a device that we designed to pull behind our paddleboards and also taking water samples. And we were filming for an educational web series and we released that series actually real time while we were on our trip we worked with oh, a local cool. production company and so we had that releasing and it got played on local tv and i uh, did a bunch of visits to local schools right after that because the whole objective from the beginning was really to connect with young people more than anything and and show them that conservation and science could be cool and it could be about adventure and all these other things that were exciting and and doing something you know, meaningful along the way. Right. And 
So, okay, so this first idea, which I I love that you brought up the first idea that didn't work and then how it led to another idea, because I think that sometimes we need that reminder that maybe the first idea might be really good, but it might just not work. And it might just be the the seed for the next thing that's going to come. So like, don't completely throw something aside if it seems like a really good idea. And this is a perfect example of that is because you did end up having this really cool expedition that was different than the first one, but the first one got you from point A to point B. So why Bermuda? That's a very specific location. I mean, yes, to do an expedition, you got to pick somewhere to do it. But why, why Bermuda? Why was it the final place that this was launched? Yeah, that's a great question. So Bermuda uh, is actually really well located to access the North Atlantic Gyre. So like the name Five Gyres, the organization who we've we've worked with extensively over the years. It comes from these five oceanic gyres, the North Atlantic, South Atlantic, North Pacific, South Pacific, and Indian Ocean, which are the primary sort of circulation zones uh, in the ocean that have these accumulations of plastic in the middle. And so the North Atlantic has actually been studied. There's a really interesting data set from sea semester out of Woods Hole, which we found way back in the early days when we were applying to the National Geographic stuff. And they had this really cool map that actually showed the distribution, the density, I should say, of plastics in kind of a color-coded concentration going from orange to yellow to red and basically representing this, this concentration of plastics from 30 years of data collection from sea semester voyages where they're doing these trawls in the North Atlantic. And so after discovering that the project to go to the Pacific gyre was sort of unfeasible for a number of reasons and, and wasn't really going to yield the, the results initially desired that we, you know, that basically we would go somewhere that was a bit more realistic and a and uh, easier to get to from from the East Coast. And so there's the the North Atlantic gyre. And so we had found these maps and and basically thought that it would be possible potentially to go out there because this area is actually known sort of as the doldrums or they called it the horse latitudes because boats that would be caught there would be sort of drifting with no wind for so long that they would end up having to like eat their horses or push their horses overboard or whatever because oh, they're crazy stuck, you know, their voyage was taking way longer and so it's kind of this area in the middle of the gyre and so we were thinking oh if it's really calm there maybe we could go and get dropped off with paddle boards and a bunch of gear and just spend like three days just kind of drifting and lash our paddle boards together at night and just <laughs> and then and research this and paddle basically like across this sort of gyre area and then get picked up you know on the other side by the same boat that dropped us off and we called this guy jp skinner in bermuda who was running a program at bios the biological research station there at the time and he was super cool. I'm chatting to him, kind of explaining the idea and stuff. And I'm like, yeah, so, you know, basically, like, I'm I'm looking to get in touch with some captains because we want to be able to, you know, see if somebody can take us out there. And he's like, yeah, to be honest with you, like, there's no captain that's going to do that. 
<laughs> there, there's no way. <laughs> cool idea, but dude, sorry. <laughs> like, yeah, sorry. 300 miles from Bermuda, leave you for three days, not going to happen. So, <laughs> so then we were like, okay, well, you know, eventually kind of worked our way down to actually using Bermuda itself as the sort of research vessel, so to speak, but it's an entire island. So it's it's really well situated within the North Atlantic gyre such that it gets a lot of non-endemic trash that comes into the shores, especially the South Shore. And so it's a really good place to sort of study this effect of ocean plastic pollution and be able to do so from an island that, especially along the South Shore, it goes from you know, basically these really cool barrier reef coral heads to then just dropping off into pretty deep water. And so you have, you know, whales coming in really close and you have the sort of Gulf Stream, you know, running through. And um, yeah, it's it's a really interesting place to be able to study ocean plastics. And uh, yeah, so that's that's what we ended up doing. Mm, so that makes sense. So it was both location and then maybe the the connections you made it sounds like this this yeah exactly guy. yeah we made really great connections there as well and we continue to make really amazing connections there and we still have really great friends in Bermuda and and Bermuda has a really active hub for all sorts of conservation and ocean related research and initiatives it's uh, it's it's a really special place um so yeah I mean there's a lot of reasons once once we kind of understood and it's it's funny that's kind of how life works right you start with one thing and if you're willing to kind of be open and sort of just follow follow the path you know you can you know find something pretty incredible Absolutely I mean like even for example it's completely different but it it shows demonstrates the same point the final iteration of this show was actually the third version of what these ideas were and it took that much mulling over the idea for the final product to come to be which is what we're sitting down recording now <laughs> it's just as a, as another example but let's let's go back to the actual expedition itself okay so we have everything set up which is great we're like okay we're gonna go to bermuda we're gonna do this 11 day expedition so let's go into the actual expedition itself so for the 11 days what exactly were you doing and you just you just talked about this new water sampling tool that you made. So like what what was that? And what were the answers that you were hoping to find during the 11 days that you were there? Yeah, so that's that's interesting. So the, on this trip we were we were just basically going from beach to beach and we had all our gear with us and you know, video equipment and so we were spending a lot of time documenting, sharing things, you know, Instagram was new. We were on social media, you know, real time, and and then paddling, of course, a lot of paddling, <laughs> and uh, and then yeah. So we had worked with a student at the University of North Carolina actually to develop this trawl, which is just what it sounds like. You know, similar for fishing. It's it's and these are catamaran trawls. So you can imagine sort of just two tubes. PVC tubes that are separated by about half a meter distance. And then there's an aperture, you know, maybe three inches of mouth uh, and then a net attached to it. And so what it does is it goes across the surface of the water and it, it allows you to sample surface water and 
basically goes through the net and then collects in the end in what's called a caught end. And then if you say you pull your trawl for one kilometer, then you can actually use the width of the trawl and the distance. So if you think about it, that's basically a really long rectangle that's half a meter wide and a kilometer long. And then you can calculate the actual surface area of the water that you've sampled. And you can use that to then do uh, abundances and so forth. And so you can extrapolate that out and you can say, you know, X number of pieces of plastic per square kilometer and so forth. And so that's the the device that we developed for the, the work in Bermuda. And there we were just kind of testing it out. Like this was just a whole sort of new concept, you know, and, and, you know, as like, as we were discussing, I think it's interesting, you know, in, in life, it's always important to remember that you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. And so as you get into something, you know, you start to understand it better. And then that's what guides the next step and kind of your direction moving forward. Um, and so, you know, whenever you come into something that you're unfamiliar with, yeah, I mean, you just should should expect to sort of be, you know, open to learning and, and sort of understanding because it's it's impossible to know the things that you don't know. And and oftentimes they're very um, sort of instrumental or like uh, they're they're significant, I think, you know, like like in, in, in a lot of in a lot of things. So, yeah, so we so we were working with this trawl, just kind of testing it out and, you know, seeing how how that worked, surf, sampling the surface water in Bermuda. And then we were also taking samples for this organization called Adventure Scientist, which were microplastic samples. And that is another program that we were involved with for a long time, just taking these one liter water samples and really simple to do, send them in. And so on the Bermuda trip, we were kind of just exploring this whole idea of what it looks like to take this novel concept of a stand-up paddleboard research expedition and have all this gear, document it along the way, create this media, you know, get people interested and get young people inspired and sort of contribute, you know, in our unique way to this overall understanding of plastic pollution and its impacts. And so then we came back from that trip and we're like, wow, we've really got something here. We've got, you know, all these sponsors working with Cliff Bar and Goal Zero and Backpackers Pantry. And we've got all this support on Bermuda and everything and 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 actually learned about the microbead issue from cosmetics and the work mm. that Five Gyres had done on the Great Lakes. And I'm from Ithaca, New York. And so we basically, you know, took this trawl and kind of to connect the dots you know, that first trip, we were kind of just testing it out. We took some samples, but we didn't really do anything with the data of any significance. And then we went out and we actually took the trawl, we improved it. And then we learned about these microbeads and, and we're like, okay, well, you know, I live on Cuga Lake and the Finger Lakes and it connects to the Erie Canal system. And these microbeads have got to be in this water too. And so we started sampling and actually started to see evidence of the microbeads and then organized an expedition to paddle from Ithaca to Albany, the capital, and sample along the way and basically carry the message about, you know, clean water and, and essentially how flagrant this pollution was where there's a product that it was designed to be flushed down 
your drain. And so, mm. and, and, and these treatment plants aren't equipped to filter that stuff out. And so it was just kind of intuitive that they would be ending up in the waterways. And so, you know, of course we went out to basically prove that and we were able to do so. We took a dozen samples from Cuga Lake all the way through the Erie Canal, um, Oneida Lake, the Mohawk River. And then we worked with the Great Lakes Plastic Pollution Research Lab out of SUNY Fredonia and Dr. Sam Mason and spent a week up in their lab analyzing the samples and put together uh, our findings, basically for the first time, proving definitively the existence of these microbeads in inland waterways. Uh, so lakes, rivers, canals, and so forth. And and we published those findings and our work was actually cited by uh, Attorney General Snyderman in his announcement, speaking out against microbeads and sort of moving the legislation forward in New York State. And so we ended up joining up with a coalition of all these organizations through that that worked to ban microbeads county by county in New York State, and then eventually have a statewide ban of microbeads. And then that led to the national microbead ban at the end of 2015. And so Obama signed the Microbead Free Waters Act in 2015. And so they've been sort of phased out and banned since then. Wow, how <laughs> cool. That must have been like the ultimate like, oh, we did real shit. Like, look, like even the president has signed this into law and we had a part of that. That had to have felt so good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it did. Yeah. So that was that was really exciting. And that was really kind of the work that established and cemented us as an organization and and set us on our way to where we are now. You know, we started getting invited to all the different coalitions and groups. <laughs> all all the networking and collaborations yeah, and yeah, everything. Collaborations and so forth. And um, yeah, and, and yeah, kind of set us on our way. So Oh, perfect. That's a good segue. That's actually the perfect segue here is because now I really want to start talking about Plastic Tides itself, and, and which is your nonprofit that you've, it sounded like you started in 2012, correct? With, with your first expedition to get the timeline down? Yeah, well, so that's, you do have the timeline, right? With 2012, it's kind of like 2012 was when that workshop was at Cornell. And then I started working on the idea throughout 2013 and actually applied to the National Geographic grant, got accepted through the first phase in end of 2013, and then officially formed like Plastic Tides, you know, PlasticTides.com and, and came up with a name and everything else. It was, <laughs> it was actually called for a little while, the Sargassum Sojourn, which is just like a joke name, but <laughs> the Sargasso Sea in is basically the area of Bermuda and Sargassum is the seaweed. That's really, I mean, it's really, it's actually, it's not really a joke. Like it's, it's, it's really important and it's a whole ecosystem. It's the basically like the lungs of the Atlantic ocean, but, but yeah, that <laughs> it was called the Sargassum Sojourn for a little while, which is, we were really into the alliteration. <laughs> Plastic tides has a little bit more uh, appeal broadly. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, 2000, so 2014 officially was the spring of 2014 was the official launch of Plastic Tides, and then that expedition around Bermuda was actually June 8th, which was World Oceans Day in 2014. And so we worked with 
some people to do, you know, some stuff around World Oceans Day with the launch of our expedition and, and so forth. Awesome. And so then right after that, that is when, so then when did the Great Lakes expedition happen? That was in, that was in November of 2014. So that was all the same. Wow. Back to back. Holy crap. Yeah. Yeah. Cause we basically (laughs) came off of that trip and then, you know, started learning about the microbeads throughout that summer and started doing research throughout the fall and then put together the expedition on the Erie Canal right at the end. By the time we had all the ducks in a row, it was we basically had two weeks left to paddle from Ithaca to Albany before the canal closed for the season. And we actually ended up getting iced out. So we hit impassable ice on the canal. And so we, we didn't actually make it to Albany that year, but we have a, we have a feature length documentary about that trip, which is called the canal. And we released that in the spring of 2015. Wow. That's so cool. That's so so cool. It was during. It was during the polar vortex in 2014. I don't know if you remember that. I event. was still in Ohio at that time. So yeah, definitely. <laughs> there were those huge clouds in Buffalo and it was like, it was, uh, yeah, it was crazy. Yeah. I feel like yeah. these days the media kind of sensationalizes the weather a little more. So it's like every other day there's like another like atmospheric polar river Thumb blizzard. Thumb. <laughs> <laughs> right right okay so now we are up to november 2014 and classic tides no 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 this is great because now i really want to start diving into what it actually is that that's the goal of plastic tides so clearly the foundation was set and you made a lot of impact early so then what was your goal moving forward i mean all, all I don't know what it must have felt like. You're just knowing me when I have like these big accomplishments. It's almost like, what do I do next? How do I how do I top this? How do we keep moving forward with this momentum? So what was the next phase of Plastic Tides and maybe what's your mission? And how did you keep the message going after these big expeditions? So, yeah, I mean, that was definitely there were a lot of challenges in sort of finding the next step, you know, along the way, every step of the way. And after those, those expeditions, we, well, I would say, you know, we kind of were like just following our nose at the beginning. We did this first project and it was really just supposed to be a one-off project that was going to then lead to, you know, whatever other opportunities, right? We were just graduating. So it was like, you know, what do we have to lose? And, (laughs) and then the microbeat issue just kind of came onto our radar and just sort of organically flowed into working on that and then next thing you know you know we're getting invited to the plastic pollution coalition and one percent for the planet's reaching out to us and we're getting invited to the un conference on marine debris in new york city and and you know like all these things are happening throughout the spring and kind of with also with the the microbead so we did that first expedition on the canal in 2014 and then that whole microbead coalition and initiative that all sort of coalesced throughout 2015 culminating at the end of 2015 with the signing of that bill and so we were kind of just like swept up in all of that and then you know by the time that happened as you said it was like okay well now you know kind of what do we do and and so our mission now 
Well, it's kind of always been, but it's our mission is to inspire and catalyze action toward a plastic-free future through adventure, education, and youth empowerment. And so we started out with these paddleboard expeditions to get young people excited. And now we're really focused on our global youth mentor program, which works with middle and high school students and provides one-on-one mentorship for them. Uh, to address, take on projects in their schools and communities that are going to address plastic pollution, biodiversity, you know, all these ecological issues upstream and just provide them sort of that structure and agency and support to, to be able to see something through to completion. And we've had really great success with that. It's a completely remote program. So it's, you know, really low footprint in terms of we don't have students flying from here to there for this conference or this or that. It's like everything is focused on people doing things where they are and just connecting them with the resources that they need to be successful. And so we've been working on that program for three years now and we still do expeditions. And so I would say kind of the three pillars of Plastic Tides as it stands today are gym, which is the Global Youth Mentor Program and our youth empowerment. and our public voice, which is our social media following and our newsletter and, you know, all the different things that we do to sort of interact in sort of the public square around the plastic pollution issue and advocate for things that we feel are important, educate and so forth. Uh, And then our expeditions are the third pillar. And so our most recent expedition was a solo expedition I undertook on the Mississippi River in the spring of 2021 so uh, almost two years ago now um, and i paddled 150 miles on the mississippi from saint james parish to the end of the river in an area known as cancer alley and i was working with a group called rise saint james and a coalition to stop formosa plastics which was this plant which a plastics production plant, which would have doubled the plastic production output for the United States, as well as the toxic air pollution in that area, which is already known as Cancer Alley. And it's it's an underserved area, mostly minority area, you know, with really high air pollution. And so that was the most recent expedition that we did. And so, yeah, and sort of the modern in, in um, as, as it stands now, that's sort of, you know, what plastic tides looks like. Yeah, it's 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 definitely taken a little bit to get to that place of stability and in sort of understanding what it is we're doing and how we fit into sort of the overall landscape of plastic pollution organizations and so forth. And so to kind of tie it back, you know, to what your original question was, you know, and sort of finding your way. Um, And there's a lot that happened in between. Of course, absolutely. I'd be happy to get more into that too, but yeah, just. (laughs) So, what was the final outcome of your Mississippi expedition? Did did that plant get shut down, or what happened? It did, yeah, actually. So, and I mean, I played a very, very small part in it, but the the plant was shut down. Well, the the permit was eventually revoked, and so the whole initiative was to get. President Biden to get the Army Corps of Engineers to revoke the permit for the plant. And so he could actually do that with executive authority. He didn't, he never did that, but the the Army Corps on their own went ahead due to, you know, a bunch of legal action by various organizations. Um, 
and the permit has been revoked for the plant. So yeah, as of now, it's it's yeah, it's it's been stopped, uh, which is really exciting. And that was yeah, just as of this fall. And so Sharon Levine, uh, who runs Rye St. James, is really the one who led the charge on that initiative. And you know, they had marches in Washington, and I mean, she's really she's been in Forbes, and she's really gotten onto the national stage around this uh, this fight. So it was, I mean, it was really exciting to be a part of it um, and sort of, yeah, see that success. Um, and it, it took a while, you know, two, over two years, you know, three years really of, wow. of people, like a concerted effort. I did want to take a second to talk about your global mentorship program. And the big reason why is the audience that we currently have, like the rewatology community is very globally based a lot of people that do work with youth or or would be really happy to be a mentor. And so I guess I just kind of wanted to plug the opportunity. Is this something where somebody listening might be able to volunteer and be a mentor for somebody around the world? Or I guess, how does that program work? And can we or me or anybody get involved with that? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. And we're always looking for mentors and and you don't need to be necessarily qualified in any specific field or expertise. You know, the biggest part is just the time commitment. And it's five to 10 hours a week throughout the course of a year to, you know, work with one to two students. And yeah, it's, it's, we're, we're currently have our third cohort underway. So we're going to be accepting applications again here in the spring as we start to recruit for our fourth cohort, which will be starting in the fall of 2023. So yeah, absolutely. And thanks so much for asking. Yeah, we're always looking for qualified mentors to work with our students and and people all around the world. You know, it's we do our best to sort of pair students and mentors in equivalent time zones and, and languages. That's nice. <laughs> Those are two important things. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But other than that, you know, we're happy to have, you know, people from different countries and so forth working together and, and also really drawing on that cross-cultural perspective, you know, with, with the cohort communicating amongst themselves and, and sort of inspiring and encouraging each other as well. That's great. I had to take a second to plug that because I love that kind of stuff. I have people that reach out to me all the time that are looking to get more involved in something in some way, shape or form. And so anytime I have anything that might fit with somebody, it was like, look at this, look at that. I'm all about sharing the love and, and growing the network and connecting people. It's what I do. It's like, oh, it's like what gets me up in the in the in the morning. It's like, who can I connect today? And I, I don't even know why they need to know each other, but they need to know each other. So you two talk and see what happens, you know? <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. And so I did want to make a, a little bit of a pivot here. And the last time you and I sat down, we had a very just open and genuine conversation about the non-sexy side of this. And because everything we've talked about is incredible. Cliff Bar, you know, Goal Zero, all of these great sponsorships and Nat Geo and, and documentaries and everything. And it's really easy to just stay on that side of things. But I am well aware and most people listening are well aware that there's there has to be another side of this. There has to be a side that might be kind of shitty on some days. And one of the things we talked a lot about was uh, how, do, how exactly do I want to word this is is sometimes, you know, with the nonprofit business model, which I know is difficult. I know that running a nonprofit 
is hard, especially when it comes to funding. And then also the for-profit side of this. So would you be okay maybe talking about or discussing maybe some things that has happened along the years that wasn't fun that you had to get over and, and go through? And it could be the nonprofit for-profit stuff or not or or anything else that you might want to talk about. But yeah, could you maybe peel back the curtain a little bit for us? And what was some of the suck that you've had to get through to get through to today? Yeah, well, that's that's a great question. I mean, it's you're you're 100 right. It's not it's not all glitz and glamour and um, sunny beaches. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's 2023 now, and we've been doing this for almost 10 years, and you know we're still here today, soldiering on and and running our organization. And it's only because we've been able to sort of bootstrap and kind of make it around every sort of unknown corner that just sort of presents itself, you know, one after the other. And I think it's, it's challenging because in the nonprofit model now, sort of, you know, where I'm at with almost, you know, 10 years of experience. And it's like, to it's kind of astonishing that I think we've made it this far, given sort of the way that we went about kind of trying to do specifically what we wanted to do and without having any sort of upfront type of capital investment or, you know, yeah, sort of jumpstart. And I think because there's a lot of nonprofits out there that, you know, basically are able to do what they do because they're kind of formed around already maybe some capital that people want to put to a certain use. And so they're able to then take that and then build off that and then leverage that to attract more resources and so on and so forth. And so, you know, for us as sort of a small bootstrapped organization, like the number of times we've heard, you know, oh, like come back when that's a little bit more developed or like when you have more Mm. progress on that, or when you have other people investing too in that, or, you know, it's like kind of, you know, over and over you, you know, hearing like that sort of the potential. And, you know, what I've learned for sure is that people want to bet on a winning horse. Like people, not many people want to go and invest in a small bootstrap nonprofit where they're, you know, 50 grand could be life changing for the organization. And there's a ton of potential because they just, a lot of people aren't visionary and they don't necessarily see that potential. And so they'd rather go and put something into something more established where there's very clear cut, you know, sort of expectation of what they're going to see and what, how they're going to be able to then, you know, parlay that into whatever else they, other objectives and, you know, incentives they have. So yeah, it's, it's, it's been a really interesting journey and, you know, I think as well for us, like there's a lot of incentive in the nonprofit space to kind of just go where the money is leading you. And Mm. so if Mm -hmm. you're really self like determined in what you are trying to do, you know, like we found ourselves through a lot of the early years, you know, okay, like there's this grant and, but it wants this thing. And so we literally come up with a whole project that we weren't even planning on doing because of the criteria for what this grant is asking for. And, 
you know, and then not getting the grant. And so it's like, we got really jaded on grants for a while because we just had put so much energy into these things. And then it was just nothing that you got back and in return for it. And so, you know, I think that across the whole sort of industry, like, I think it would be so helpful. And I, I don't know how this would ever happen, but for people in these different positions and so forth to have more perspective and understanding of kind of how everything actually works for small organizations that are just trying to make an impact, you know, and be as efficient as they can with the resources that they have access to and not try and get them to jump through so many hoops. It's like, there's a lot of different ulterior motivations. You know, a lot of the money that goes into nonprofits is different types of special interests and so forth. And, you know, even this recent thing that everyone's been talking about with Patagonia and sort of lauding Yvonne Chouinard for putting the company basically into a trust to then benefit the planet. And, you know, as much as I'm a huge supporter of Patagonia and their mission and everything that they're doing, one thing that's interesting is I don't think many people are talking about how this particular tax loophole that essentially allows a billionaire to decide how his what would be tax income that would be then spent by the government as necessary is then directed towards something of their discretion. And and something I don't think many people have pointed out is that it's great if it's Yvonne Chouinard and he's directing it towards saving the planet. But that same tax loophole can be used by any nonprofit for any purpose. And mm -hmm. not all nonprofits are formed for altruistic purposes. There's many nonprofits out there that are formed for, you know, all sorts of other things. And, um, and they can circumvent sort of the, the tax obligation in that way, which I, I think is something that we ought to be rather wary of. Yeah. And See, these are perspectives that only someone that has been in the industry as long as you are going to come to and help us see that aren't. Because I've been, I've worked in several nonprofits now, and it really wasn't until I worked for a mission-based for-profit that I really started to see the difference. And just like you said, like where the money comes from and all of this stuff. And I've, I know so many people that have these amazing intentions and goals, and they're like, I want to start a nonprofit. And I want to, and I, at first I'd be like, yeah, do that. Oh my gosh, you should totally do that. And now it's like, whoa, 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 let's pump the brakes a little bit. What is your purpose for starting this nonprofit? And then also, how are you actually going to fund it? Will you be able to make your bills? Will you be able to do all of these other things to, to, in support of your mission? And that is why I want to bring that kind of stuff. I didn't, I hadn't even thought of it that way, you know, with this, all the Patagonia like you said, great things. They have an amazing mission that he has been dedicated to for a very long time. And I applaud Patagonia as well for that kind of stuff. But you're totally right. I would have never thought about that or the way that some, you know, while I have worked for mission based for profits doing very good things, there are also for profits that are using nonprofits in bad ways. You know, greenwashing is so real. And so they're like, oh, we have partnered with so and so and so and so. And like, look how much money we're giving to them. And that's not always the case. It might just be a headline or like some marketing push that this company does. And so seeing that from both sides. So just like you said, sometimes nonprofits are used when they are really trying to do good. And then also on the bat on the other side, there are some for profits that are really doing good things that then might not have the same 
respect or something because they're not a nonprofit. Like, oh, you're not totally mission based if you're for profit. So I guess, yeah, it's just really diving into the nuance here. And I know that you have firsthand experience of the nuances. And I know that you're starting your own for profit for for a really good reason as well. So like, yeah, it's it's not near as cut and dry as what I thought it was starting my career in the nonprofit sector is, is where I really got started in conservation. And it wasn't until I worked for my first mission based for profit that my previous beliefs were completely thrown on their head. And I'm like, well, <laughs> I got to go back to the drawing board. None of this is just black and white. It's all gray. OK, cool. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, it's like I think the operative word in all of this is nuance. And I think mm -hmm. that's something that in just unfortunately in our modern society is often lost in communication and is really instrumental in sort of understanding so many things and so many distinctions um, because you know like you said there's there's a lot of greenwashing out there and there's unfortunately a lot of nonprofits that are just complicit in in this greenwashing and primarily because they just are trying to do something and good and they just for whatever reason you know, don't have sort of a, a um, complete enough view and understanding of how all the pieces and everything works together to understand, you know, what it means to take money from this company so that they can then say this about what they're doing, or, you know, all these different layers and connections. And, and then you have organizations where you know, for instance, us with Plastic Tides, you know, we're we're still pretty small. And I'm in a position where I've I have all this experience and I can see these things, but you know, many of my colleagues don't yet. And so they kind of rely on me. But if imagine these all these organizations where there's not necessarily sort of a gatekeeper, there's mm -hmm. just somebody whose job it is to do partnerships and when they get reached out to by this company who's like here here's some money and we're gonna do this and they're, they're like sweet awesome great you know this is my job like and so you just think about that times you know thousands of interactions and you have this web of you know all these different companies like leveraging and i'll tell you that you know companies businesses are smart a business is in business to make a profit. They're not in business to go handing out money to a nonprofit. And so when a business engages with a nonprofit, it is a marketing transaction and they are looking to give as little as they can to get as much as they can. And we've experienced that over the years time and again in situations where you know you feel like you're kind of investing in the relationship, expecting that at some point it's kind of going to pay off and they're going to sort of come through with something of significance and then it's just this and that and budget this and you know private equity investors that and you know every story under the sun and and you know at the end of the day you know every business is trying to get something for nothing from a nonprofit and a lot of them are able to do so unfortunately yeah and i i completely agree and see what you're talking about because a lot of people have asked why i've not monetized this platform and that's why, because I am so scared to partner with a company that might just try to use this platform for their own gain. And I'm so protective of this child of mine that is Rewatology, And then also the community that we've built around this, like 
I don't want them to be subject to a brand that in the end is not in their best interest. And that because I, I have seen both sides now. And yeah, maybe if I started the show when I was like 21, I wouldn't know better. You know, first person that comes to mind that say they're sustainable or say they're green mm-hmm. to sponsor a show like this. And I'm like, oh, my God, yes, absolutely. And now I'm like so freaking picky. But it's the same thing. It's, it's going through experience and seeing the people that are really doing everything for the right reason and the people that aren't. And like, how do you differentiate between the two? And also, too, again, like no one is going into a nonprofit to be rich. And so that's another thing that I don't think that a lot of people take into consideration before launching something like this. It's you got to really remember what is your actual monetary needs and will you be able to fulfill these in a way that can both reach your mission and make sure that you have food on your table. So just things like that, like things that we don't think about until we're deeper into the field and these nuanced type things. And, and I know that you've seen them because we've talked about them and I wanted to take some time to to really bring that to light because it's very rare that we have a chance to talk about these things openly. Absolutely. And I really appreciate that. And I think, you know, you know, kind of the other piece of that, you know, as you said, kind of accomplishing your mission, putting food on the table. And I think sort of the other kind of piece of that is maintaining your integrity and whatever that means for you. And I think, you know, perhaps like, I think it's important to have like sort of transparency personally in terms of that, you know, and I don't think necessarily I think everyone's in a different place when it comes to sort of what that means for them. But that's kind of, you know, where it comes back to, you know, like you said, and 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 I think also that's where the real value and kind of user or listener supporter. And so you've mentioned, you know, you haven't, you know, monetized the podcast to do like, you know, third party ads or things of that nature. But I don't know if you do have a subscriber base and you're and you're you know generating support in that way you know where it's people that are just directly donating to what you're doing because they believe in it and i think that that is really the most sort of simplest and like most unadulterated form of of support and so you know coming back to like plastic tides and what we're trying to do at this point you know i've been through this whole journey with kind of my perspective on on what a nonprofit kind of can do and is meant for. And, and I believe that like what we're doing with Jim is something that the free market is not going to provide. It's not something that Mm -hmm. is, Mm -hmm. has a business value to it. You know, there's no other than the way that you can leverage it for marketing for other businesses based on contributions, you know, it's like what it is, this, support structure mentoring program for for young people it's it's just something that it's the type it's the type of thing that's meant for a nonprofit model because it's not going to be supported in any other way it's 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 not a business model you know it's something that we feel that has value in the world and that we want to bring into existence and that isn't a business and is not going to be able to support itself as a business and so you know like now we're really as focused as possible on just having, you know, direct, like a solid base of direct support, you know, and then different foundations, grants, things that are just saying, we're, we just want to support you to do what you're doing and keep doing it because it's great, you know, but yeah, it's difficult to find that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. 
and since, like I said, we we really talked about it last time. So I, I wanted to have an opportunity to go into those nuances because it's so it's so valuable to talk about these things. Like, I wish that if anyone listening is considering starting a non nonprofit or has started a nonprofit, like reaching out to people like you or, or where to even start. Or, I didn't even think about that. Oh, my gosh. Or signing up with these other or let's say that a for profit reaches out to a nonprofit. Like, how do you? look at that relationship and, and what is the mm -hmm. real motives there so yeah, yeah just being aware that there is something there's more to the conversation in that email than just hey we want to support your nonprofit. It's like gotta look behind look behind the message <laughs> what is actually <laughs> being said yeah. yeah 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 so let's so let's shift a little bit now and and i, w I want to come back to you for a second and I actually, I want to take this full circle to the very beginning. And like I said, you were able to take two completely separate fields that had nothing to do with each other and combine them. And I would say that that is a very creative solution to the plastics problem. And let's say that somebody is listening right now in our field and they're in some sort of creative rut. They're like, I have this problem. I have absolutely no idea how to solve it. So with your creative ways and these creative ideas that you've come up with, like what advice would you give for someone that is stuck and they need inspiration to maybe solve it in a way that they haven't thought of before? What, what's some tips that you've thought of in your journey? I think the first thing to do is just take a step back and maybe find someone, not find someone often. Hopefully you have someone that you trust that sort of is up to speed enough on your life that you don't have to explain everything to them, but they're also removed enough from whatever situation it is that they have some perspective and sort of just explain it to them and just see if you can get some, some insight from someplace not so close to the scenario. Uh, I think that's the first step. And, and oftentimes when you're so sort of dug into trying to solve something in one way, you're, it's just really difficult to see how you could be coming at it from a completely different angle or perspective and and have a really simple solution. But like I said, it's just it's really hard to gain that perspective yourself. So if you can kind of cheat a little bit and uh, <laughs> and rely on somebody else, that's helpful. Yeah, sometimes just seeing things from 10,000 feet is really helpful when you're able to disengage and remove yourself. And I've had several of those moments, too, where someone's just like, why don't you do this? And I'm like. <laughs> dang exactly right there you go that's that's the exact thing i'm talking about exactly that yeah exactly that <laughs> oh and then to take this maybe bigger picture is there a certain message or piece of advice that you would like to share with anyone listening i think my advice would be to to find your purpose and to live your purpose i think we all have a purpose here on on this planet and we all have something we can contribute to make it a better place. And so, uh, you know, yeah, figuring out what that is and then yeah, just trying to do that. And so, of course, like since you're you have so much adventure in your life, what's next? Or can you maybe share with us what you're doing next? Or is it still hush hush or what's on the horizon? Well, yeah, I mean, it's uh, well, you know, kind of to bring things full circle and as well, in a way, you know, you mentioned earlier. Um, that I'm, you know, personally kind of transitioning from the nonprofit space, uh, you know, to try and make an impact through a for-profit enterprise. And so I've got 
my company trees wax which is petroleum free surf wax uh, responsibly sourced from rocks and trees and so i'm going to be really focused on that over the the sort of coming months and i'm based here in santa cruz and so you know i'm out and about here spreading the brand and then uh, i'm going to be on the road sort of up and down the california coast just networking and and building community meeting surfers and giving out wax and getting shops signed on and and all that fun stuff so yeah it's kind of head down on that for me and you know like you said it's you know plastic tides is is doing its thing and the gym program is running smoothly and for me it's it's really exciting to be kind of transitioning to sort of this slightly you know more uninhibited uh yeah approach through through business and and just having something where you can create an impact you know directly through a product that you're selling and and for me you know i've been surfing you know for almost 30 years and surf wax is made all from petroleum distillates the the conventional surf wax and so it's one of those things that you know from all my experience you know working with plastic tides and plastic pollution and everything else it just seems like we could be doing it a better way and there's you know there are lots of little companies here and there that have that have come up with cool solutions but if you look at the mainstream market it's really just sex wax and sticky bumps out there still and so i'm trying to make something that works as good if not better than the alternative and at a comparable price point and widely available and so and to really shift the market you know and, and open people's minds through that as well to sort of uh, the impact of the petroleum industry as as well as sort of elevating the social capital of trees and forests and that's what the brand trees wax is all about is really showing people like that trees just bring so much value to everything you know on the planet and forests and old growth forests you know untouched forests are like some of the most important habitats to protect and preserve on the planet because you can't grow a forest any tree planting all this stuff like that's not a forest it's impossible to grow a forest a forest is this incredibly complex interaction you know web of organisms that's evolved together over thousands of years typically and um, that's what i'm really excited about sort of spreading and sharing in the world and, and trying to do that through you know a for-profit brand where you can kind of yeah be self-sustaining and 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 also you know grow you know sort of unrestricted you know as you connect with people so yeah that's that's what i'm super excited about yeah that's awesome and i'm yeah i was hoping you would bring that up because i i think it's just so cool too again from all of your experience you're gonna play with both models now you've been the director of this fantastic nonprofit that you helped launch a decade ago and now it's time to explore something new for for the better of the planet and for the sport that you love so much so you've connected them again but almost in like the backwards direction now <laughs> Which is yeah, super exactly. cool. so let's say that someone listening might want to get a hold of you or watch your progression as you're going down your story maybe the next expedition how trees wax goes what plastic tides is up to how can somebody get a hold of you or get a hold of plastic tides and just watch what you're all up to yeah so thanks it's a number of ways you can do that so on the social medias at plastic tides of course you can follow plastic tides 
Trees Wax Surf is is where you can tip today with Trees Wax. Chris Cross Shaw, that's me personally on on Instagram. And then Christian at Plastic Tides is probably the best email to reach out to me sort of about any kind of questions, you know, things related to nonprofit, all that stuff. And treeswaxsurf at gmail.com is my other <laughs> is my other email for treeswax for any sort of treeswax related business inquiries or interests and stuff. And uh yeah, treeswax.com if you're you know looking to get some surf wax or um pick up a hat and uh <laughs> <laughs> yes. um yeah we're pretty stoked we've got these really cool new baseball caps that are made with it's the first plastic free hat ever that has a brim made from a cork bamboo cork laminate so our friends up in what Portland, these. yeah yeah it's, it's pretty exciting okay that is really cool <laughs> <gasps> Look, I might need one of these hats. What? That is amazing. I've not been able to source a sustainable hat, so there isn't one in the shop. So <laughs> that's so cool. <laughs> yeah, it's really exciting. And like I said, I got to give the credit to the friends up in uh, up in Portland from Rustech who who came out with these hats. And um, you know, I think it's one of those things. Like our whole approach with Trees Wax is that in business, if you're gonna do something you should try and do something better than someone else is doing it more sustainable, more, you know, socially conscious, more abundant, whatever it is, you know, that you're doing, like try and do something better because otherwise, what are you doing? You know, like, what's the point? Right. And, and I think, unfortunately there are so many businesses out there that are just doing the same thing. It's the McDonald's yes. set up across the street from the Burger King, you know, selling the same t-shirts made, and even these things where it's like, let's go make some t-shirts from the cheapest thing with like the worst, you know, conditions, whatever, and slap some logo of a shark on it and and say we're giving 5% back to ocean conservation. And like, that's just more of the same problem right there, you know? So it's like, I think thinking deeply and intentionally about kind of what you're creating in the world and how you can do it. And so anyway, coming back to the hats, like I would say first, you know, first off, if you need a hat, try and get one from, you know, somebody that's not using that. I don't know, like, <laughs> yeah. get, like, like so many people have like stuff, you know, like, like, you know, your buddy's got an extra hat, whatever. But like at the end of the day, like, you know, we're in a, a consumer society and, you know, we're constantly creating new stuff. And so whether I like it or not, you know, we're, people are buying hats and so they can be buying hats that are made from, you know, regenerative cork and bamboo and no plastic, then all the better. That is, yeah, that's awesome. I didn't even know it existed. So I'll definitely have to look that up, but yeah. <laughs> well, thanks Christian so much for sitting down with me the whole Rewoodology community and taking us through all of your incredible knowledge and what you're up to. You'll have to keep us posted on all of your adventures. We'll have to share them. They sound awesome. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks. Thanks so much, Brooke. After this conversation with Christian, I'll say that my gears are turning too on how I can combine my passions in life. I haven't come up with an answer yet, but I'm still mulling over it. Have you successfully combined your passions to bring awareness to an issue that you care about? If so, I'd love to hear about it. Please send me a DM on Instagram or Facebook or email the show at hello at rewardology.com. Maybe we should have a creative get together or a think tank of some sort. 
I don't know. I really think it would be a great idea. And I'll let you all know if this comes together. If you have a specific question you'd like to discuss about today's topic, head on over to the Rewildology YouTube channel and submit your question in the comment section of today's episode. Some of you have reached out and asked how you can support the show. Well, I'm happy to share that there are several ways to do so. Some zero-cost ways to support the show include subscribing to the podcast on your favorite streaming app, leaving a rating and review to boost the algorithm, which will present the podcast to more listeners, signing up for the weekly Rewildology newsletter at Rewildology.com, subscribing to the YouTube channel, and following the show on your favorite social media app. If you'd like to financially support the show and help us keep these stories on the airwaves, consider making a monetary donation at Rewildology.com or purchase a piece of swag to show off your Rewildology love. At least 10% of proceeds from this show will be donated to our conservation partners. I'd also like to extend a special thanks to Heather Valley, the show's audio and video producer for making the show sound and look awesome, and Focusrite for powering the podcast sound. If you'd like to see the gear we use to record the show, head on over to rewildology.com and check out Nature Podcasting under the Resources tab. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet. Hey, thanks again for listening to this episode of Rewildology. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe button to never miss a future episode. Do you have a cool environmental organization, travel story, or research that you'd like to share? Let me know at rewildology.com. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet.